0: Welcome back to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Ryan Rosenthal, being joined by Andre Gonowella. Andre, how are you? Happy Easter. Happy Passover. Thank you very much. And happy Ramadan to those celebrating. It's all three, kind of at the same time. It's very interesting. I think it's the first time in like 33 years or something like that, that it's been like this.
1: Well, you have that number on lock. Uh, Someone,
0: Someone said it to me. I don't know.
1: Yeah, Ryan, I just got back from Sacramento. I was at my friend's wedding. It was a great wedding. Uh... And uh, But I'm tired, I guess. <laughs> I've been doing a lot of traveling for work and leisure and the wedding. And I was at Michigan last week for this uh, social media conference. But uh, how are you doing?
0: Honestly, no complaints. I was uh, in Detroit uh, for Passover, seeing my family and friends, uh, which was very nice. Uh, but back in Washington, D.C. right now, approaching the end of the semester uh, of, of law school. And so, yeah, honestly, it's, things are going really well. Just really busy. Um but glad to be kind of, you know, kicking away at the podcast.
1: Yeah. So basically Ryan, uh I wanted to do this episode today so over the summer and the fall, we had a little 6 episode mini series uh, on Sri Lanka called Sri Lanka Debt, Development and Democracy. We interviewed a former prime minister of the country who now sits in opposition. The At the time, the current uh, deputy foreign minister, uh, prominent economist, a Tamil politician, uh, Tamil being the minority ethnicity in Sri Lanka, the most significant minority ethnicity in Sri Lanka, uh, journalists and some other folks to sort of get some context about Sri Lanka's debt crisis and how Sri Lanka sort of fits in to sort of US-China uh, competition, as we see uh, Sri Lanka engage in a lot of partnerships, economic and political, uh, with China. But uh, very recently, Sri Lanka's economic crisis has intensified. Almost, I mean, within the last few months, the Sri Lankan rupee uh, The U.S. dollar to rupee rate used to be $1 gets you 202 rupees at the beginning of March. Now, or at least at the time I was recording the interview, it was around $1 gets you 320 rupees. So that's a depreciation of, I think, almost 50%, uh, which is pretty bad. So like there's food shortages, there's like long queues, there's power cuts for 13 hours. And there have been mass protests since the beginning of the month that, are unlike anything you've ever seen in Sri Lankan history. These protests are largely peaceful. Uh, they've been cross-cutting across all demographics, across all the ethnicities, religions, ages, and so on, across the entire country, basically protesting and asking that the current government, helmed, helmed by Gotabaya Rajapaksa as the president and his brother, Mindar Rajapaksa, as prime minister, that they basically leave uh, For some context, the Rajapaksa brothers have controlled a lot of the Sri Lankan government over the past uh, two years. And between 2005 and 2015, uh, they were ousted for a little bit by an opposition party or a coalition. But the economic crisis is the worst since independence. And these mass protests, again, are historically unprecedented. Um, And uh, it's, it's a very unique, I think, situation that's going on in Sri Lanka right now. So Ryan, uh, have you been watching this at all? I mean, we've been focusing on Russia, Ukraine, of course, quite a bit, because that's where the news is. Uh, it's a terrible conflict, but the rest of the world is still going on as we see.
0: Yeah. You know, part of our job with this podcast is to stay apprised of the things going on. And of course, you know, you being uh, a Sri Lankan American and, you know, your, your family there, so you know these issues really well. And so I, of course, anytime I see news about Sri Lanka, I read about it. And it is Truly amazing, because you know you're, the the series. And for those of you who have not listened to Andre's series on Sri Lanka, you should do it. It's a great primer, and it'll help you understand what's happening now today, which is really significant and important. I mean, the the series that you did, Andre, was great to to help people understand why Sri Lanka is important and why it's also interesting and the history and the culture and the people. Um, but I, I will say I'll say two things. First, yes, the world is consumed with uh, the Russo-Ukrainian war, uh, but It doesn't mean that there aren't things happening around the world and, you know, things that we should pay attention to. And this is one of them. Uh, Just because we haven't seen things like this before, the government is, I mean, and you hear about it in the episode. And I I was really, you know, fascinated by this episode. Uh, So I I think you all very much enjoy it. But um, it is one it's crazy to think that, you know, of course, one family could have so much power in any place. And this is not just unique to Sri Lanka. It happens around the world. Uh, But nonetheless, I mean, the fact that when you see uprisings like this, it usually doesn't go well for those in power. And so we will certainly see, and I know, Andre, you'll probably have some updates since you recorded this that we'll do at the end, Uh, but I think everyone should pay very close
1: attention to what's happening in Sri Lanka. Absolutely. So for this episode, actually, I interviewed uh, Dr. Sanjana Hatutowa, uh, who has a PhD, basically specializing in the study of social media and politics. He was also the founding editor of a great uh, news organization called Ground Views in Sri Lanka. Basically, Sri Lanka's first uh, civic-minded news organization did a lot of in-depth reporting uh, at a time when there was a lot of fear by journalists of government reprisal, especially government reprisal by the Rajapaksa brothers against folks who would write very critical pieces of them. Uh, But Sanjana... Founded this, and he's very, very well versed in the Sri Lankan political situation because he is, of course, Sri Lankan. Uh, and we frankly have a no bullshit conversation on what's going on in Sri Lanka right now. What sort of led up to this situation? Uh, who the Rajapaksa brothers are, why they were and are scary. And why these protests are unique uh, in Sri Lankan history, also unique in the fact that they are primarily peaceful. Uh, again, so I'll have more on that after the episode, but for now, uh, here's a great primer on uh, what's happening in Sri Lanka right now, why it's historic, and why you should care. Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. Uh, my name is Andra Uh I am hosting this episode alone. My co host couldn't make it today, but uh, As we might have seen, uh, well, as all of us know, uh, we have uh, done a six-episode miniseries on Sri Lanka over the summer and the fall that sort of looked at Sri Lanka in the context of the U.S.-China relationship and Sri Lanka's debt crisis and its economic crisis. It's been a couple of months since we released those episodes, and now Sri Lanka is experiencing its worst economic crisis uh, since independence. There have been 13-hour power cuts food shortages and grocery queues, and a severe currency depreciation. Uh, The dollar to Sri Lankan rupee rate in the beginning of March was around 202. Uh, Today, according to Google, it's about 320. So that's deep, severe depreciation. Uh, This has led to significant island-wide mass protests against the ruling Rajapaksa family. Uh, As the president, Gotabe, and the prime minister, Mayim, are actually brothers. So we've been seeing mass protests island-wide And uh, today I am being joined by Dr. Sanjana Hattotoa, who is a current research fellow at the Disinformation Project in New Zealand. Uh, Sanjana was also the founding editor of Groundviews, a fantastic website, Sri Lanka's first civic media news site between 2006 and 2020. uh, Sanjana was also the senior researcher at the Center for Policy Alternatives in Sri Lanka between 2002 and 2020. I would consider him actually the preeminent expert on social media and politics in Sri Lanka. Uh, His Twitter profile has a lot of informative uh, content on social media and politics in Sri Lanka, and that's especially valuable for our conversation today as we dive into uh, what has caused these mass protests in Sri Lanka and how those protests are actually proceeding uh, against the current government over the past few weeks. So uh, Sanja, uh, thank you so much for joining me here today. I really appreciate it and a very kind introduction. So Sanjana, for our guests, uh, as I mentioned before, we did a six episode mini series sort of assessing Sri Lanka's political and economic state back in or between August and October. Uh, certainly a lot has changed since then. So could you tell us what actually is going on in Sri Lanka right now with these mass protests?
2: Well, in addition to that uh, introduction that you gave, the element that you missed is that we are running out of medicine. And as um, astounding and absurd and incredible as that may sound, this is the first time in history that we, as a country, have uh, run out of essential supplies of medicine. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, a month or two ago, we didn't have paracetamol and or Panadol, um, which you would take for headaches and and other ailments. And one of the most commonly off uh, off the counter. Things that you would, any any household would require or need really. And we ran out of that. And now actually the condition is more dire and severe where hospitals are postponing elective surgery. And uh, there was a photo that went viral of surgery that took place um, with cell phone cameras because the light, the electricity had failed. And uh, we don't have now medicines to um, do basic stuff and to keep, patients sometimes even alive. Uh, And uh, prenatal care is also taking a hit with the perinatal society of the country saying that they're not uh, sure whether they'll be able to keep babies alive. So this is very traumatic, as you can imagine. I mean, I'm sure it is for listeners over there, but it's not as if Sri Lankans are used to this kind of news or this kind of reality either. So I know that (laughs) Andre will be talking about uh, social media and politics, but I just want to give listeners a Reality check around that which we will we won't be talking about, but is an existential crisis of unprecedented proportions affecting everybody in the country, irrespective of uh, where they live and who they are. Um, So, with that backdrop, I suppose that's also a segue into what has changed. I suppose I mean you mentioned October last year, and the simplest way of putting it is that politic. I mean on 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 any front, from the human security through to the macroeconomic, through to the political, through to the general timber thrust and tone of government in dealing with the crisis, uh, through to the ability of political leadership to identify what has been for many moons prior to what we see today, identified, clearly flagged as a point of concern by civil society and virtually every other person that I know of, but not acknowledged by the government or the former central bank, the head of the central bank. So in a sense, I suppose that's what listeners should also be tuned into, which is that this is not something that suddenly came about. For example, it's not a volcanic eruption or a tsunami that is a cataclysmic disaster that you have very prior warning around. This has been a long time coming. And arguably for some, like myself, we would have said that the competence and the capacity of the government to deal with a complicated set of issues were suspect from the very beginning. But that's something that we can go on later on in the day. But it's very clear that since the end of 2021 through to what we see today, things have gone awry and pear-shaped at pace. And that has been uh, now what is essentially a debt default, a major debt restructuring. We don't have the money to pay back an inordinate sum of money that we owe. The country is in debt and severely. It's a generational debt. And it's very, very severe on that front. And the country has now had to deal with uh, the IMF for a bailout and the negotiations are proceeding embryonic at the moment as we speak. But in the next weeks and months to come, we'll have some formative shape to uh, get the country out of the immediate situation. But this is going to be a very long haul and a very painful one at that. Um, Politically, though, what has happened is that on account of what has been an expanding existential crisis, first, I suppose, in a way, affecting the what you would call the bottom of the pyramid or the or the lower economic tiers has now impacted everybody you know, and so that's the that 's the extraordinary astounding unprecedented nature of this uh, which I suppose is approximate reason for what we see today, and listeners would be more familiar with this. Um, given the coverage that they might have seen on the telly or read in the news, which is that it's, as you said in your introduction, island-wide protests over the economic collapse and calamity and catastrophe brought about by the president and his family. And again, I don't know how many listeners know, but this is one family. It's a large family. Everybody and their dog is in government. And um, the current president, the current prime minister have been uh, in, in in positions of authority, if not elected positions of public office uh, since 2005. So this is a, um, a family that is imbricated and inextricably entwined in every imaginable thing from business to military, to economic, to the political. Uh, corruption is rife, incompetence is even more rife. And so uh, the public have come to see what the family is for who they are, at least with the economic front, even though many of us have had longstanding concerns about the family and the president and the prime minister in particular, uh, going back at least to 2009 and the end of a 30 year old war at the time, which has the current president implicated in alleged crimes against humanity and war crimes and post-war Sri Lanka also saw a hellish landscape of extrajudicial killings, abduction, murder, um, custodial uh, murder, uh, the uh, slaughter of journalists, and censorship that placed us at the bottom of the barrel repeatedly, year on year, in Freedom House press freedom rankings as well. So this is not a this is not a family. Put simply, for listeners in the United States that is known for its democratic credentials or even remotely an interest in democracy. Now all of that is not necessarily what is being front faced in Gall near Colombo, where the largest uh, Protests movement has set up camp in a in a in a, in a very large grassy knoll um, called Golfis. Um The front-facing issues right now are that people are literally and I, and you know I I mean it quite in the way that I say people are starving, people are going hungry. This is not a figure of speech, and that has now risen to the fore. And what you see, I suppose, what I'm observing from New Zealand, I mean, obviously I'm deeply connected. My doctoral research was on Sri Lanka. I remain very deeply connected to what is happening is that on every imaginable front, from the volume and the vector and the velocity of content production to the tone, timber and thrust, what is being produced, who is producing it, the manner in, in which it is being produced from the lyricism of the songs to, through to the, uh, the, the graphical visual expression of art, uh, from what people are saying, who's saying it, who's part of it. It's the most demographically diverse and the geographically dispersed movement and protest movement in the country's history. And so that's reflected on social media as well. And to end, Andre, uh, you know, it might be the case that Western journalists get this wrong insofar as in a comparison to say arab spring or uh, Zukote park um, which have had comparable emotional and political resonance i suppose to list for listeners over there those things have always been in a sense i mean not Zukote park but certainly arab spring has been implicated with violence that is not what we see today and that's quite extraordinary really i mean there's a incredible camaraderie unity Um, a a single unified message coming out of the protests, which have been overwhelmingly uh, predominantly peaceful. Uh, And that's something that I think everybody is quite astonished by, actually. Um, But that's something that I think I wanted to stress in what is, for the country, an extraordinary moment, both in terms of uh, the macroeconomic collapse and the collapse of trust in government, but correspondingly and simultaneously, an extraordinary and equally unprecedented moment and movement that is represented on social media as well.
1: Sanjana, that was a great, uh, wide-ranging overview of I mean, basically what's going on right now. Uh, you mentioned golf phase. So just so our listeners know, I guess that would be the equivalent of New York Central Park. Uh, people right now are camped out there protesting. Uh, and I do want to dig into the Rajapaksa family because it's very interesting, especially with the culture of fear. Again, Sanjan, as you mentioned, they have been in positions of power since basically 2005. The current prime minister, Mahinda, was president between 05 and 15, and his brother, the current president, Gotabe, was a defense secretary uh, in those years. Again, a very bloody end to the civil war, implicated in war crimes and so on. But Sanjana, I just want to return to the economic situation just very briefly before we go on. Uh, We did have uh, Subhashini Abe-singh sort of come on and talk about what led to the current debt crisis, but I knew it was bad in the fall, but how in the world did it get, I mean, just this bad, like just so, I mean, it wasn't like a volcanic explosion, as he said. But it just felt like suddenly in the past few weeks, the depreciation accelerated, suddenly the food shortages were more acute, the medicinal shortages were more acute. Like what happened in the past, I guess, two months?
2: Well, I'm not an economist, so I can't answer that in terms of macroeconomics. But you see, the rate of collapse of a country that is facing a debacle of this nature is exponential. It's not necessarily linear. It's a domino effect that increases with every step of regression and The simple answer to it, even though it might be incredible for listeners, because we are talking about a country and we are talking about political leadership, is that it's a degree of obduracy, incompetence, inanity, and just the inability to comprehend the cataclysm that awaits as a consequence of their inaction. And so it's been denial and to decry and to devalue to the extent that it doesn't exist even, anybody who said to anything to the contrary, that the government has projected and presented as their version of the truth, which is that there is no problem, <laughs> you know? And again, I mean, I, I risk incredulity when I say it in, these, in this manner, because any sane person would question that and say, surely you would think that elected officials in the central bank and i suppose in the you know in, in the federal reserve in the united states or say the white house uh, you know if there was a comparable situation would know and would respond and react accordingly but we, we literally haven't had until the past two weeks uh even a remote acknowledgement that what has transpired would transpire and so there's been that kind mm-hmm. of ignorance uh, i mean not, maybe not ignorance but um, a refusal to acknowledge what has been building up over time. And as any economist would say, uh, you know, it's it's exponential. If you don't take a look at what is going systemically wrong in the first instance and as soon as you can, then it kind of builds up and it becomes, a, in, in social sciences, you call it a wicked problem. The problem is so complicated and complex that any one solution you try to get as an answer to it um, Renders the problem more complicated to, the, to a degree that you can only have what uh, American social scientists in the 60s called a satisfying solution, which is that there's never going to be the perfect one. You've got to try to keep perfecting something because it's too complicated to address. And that's kind of where the, where the country is at at the present moment. So, I mean, I, I, I feel for people like Subhashini, who are, and, and others, by the way, who are asked this question, who are robust, sincere, independent knowledgeable economists because it beggars belief yeah. as to how we got here. But we have got here and it's it's got progressively worse as a consequence of not, not being able to read the signals and the signs early on.
1: Yeah, definitely. So now let's move into a discussion on the Rajapaksa family. So Sanjana, uh- your website ground that you were a founding editor of. Uh yes. I used to read it when I was a teenager. I still read it obviously, but I read it when I was a teenager, sort of coming of age in terms of my own uh understanding of like what Sri Lankan politics is actually like. Uh, you know, I'm a Sri Lankan American immigrant here, a naturalized citizen of America, but very close to my Sri Lankan roots. And, you know, when you're growing up, you don't hear about all this corruption and these killings and whatnot. But uh, I think your website was one of the first websites that really alerted me to that presence, especially when it comes yeah. to uh, the Rajapaksa family. Uh, Gotabe Rajapaksa, I mean, when you sort of read the stories about him, the white vannings and the killings of some of these journalists and so on, he is a scary dude. He is a scary dude. And you might have to explain to listeners what white vanning is. Well, basically, with white vans, uh, if you were a dissident essentially, there'd be like a white man that would come after you and you'd disappear, quote unquote. You'd disappear That's and right. no one would hear hear from you again. And Gota Bay was known for white vans. and it's a it's a very scary thing. So I guess, can you sort of illustrate to us what this sort of culture of fear? was like around Gota Bay when he was defense secretary after the yeah. war, and uh, whether this culture of fear around him has pervaded. Because right now, with all of these protests and all of these very famous people speaking out of him, and now it seems that a culture of fear is gone. But first, let's dig into the, the prior culture of fear.
2: Well, it, it is exactly as you said, it was. But Freud is very clear about fright, fear, and anxiety. And fright and fear have uh, sources that you are scared about, arachnophobia with spiders, for example. But in addition, uh, André, to what you said and said very well, is this pervasive culture of anxiety that was there. an anxiety in the sense that you didn't quite know what would happen to you when, from whom, or where, and at which time. Um, if you crossed a threshold or a line or a line in the sand, that made you a target of, uh, well, the individual concern, but also the regime. Um, and so he, it was self-censorship that was rife. You never quite knew what the line was. And mind you, this was in a context and culture and country where extrajudicial killings were amongst some of the highest in the world at the time. Mm-hmm. Torture mm-hmm. was rife, abductions were rife. And also, Andre, the other thing about all of this is that there was a culture of impunity, So it's not as if anybody who was even remotely accused and then occasionally remotely rarely brought into police custody ever saw any kind of justice. And, you know, there was an open culture, really, of championing white banning, of, uh, you know, thinly veiled, dog whistled threats to journalists who are investigative or independent journalists working on regime corruption. Uh, through to, obviously, the murder of very high-profile journalists like Tasanta Vikramatunga, whose perpetrators are still not known and have still to be accounted for. You have a daughter who is fighting for her father's case in the United States and brought about a case against the incumbent president of Sri Lanka, and that had to be shelved because he was elected to office. But these are things that he will have to answer for. And just for the listeners to know, the president of sri lanka was till he renounced his citizenship an american citizen mm-hmm. he had to renounce his american citizenship because the constitution of sri lanka doesn't allow a foreigner to run for that political office um, and so you have an american essentially you know, <laughs> who was during the entire i mean by the way this a listener should know that he only renounced it in 2019 so for the entirety of the tortuous literally and metaphorical uh, period that he was in charge of or oversaw and was implicated with, this was an American citizen doing all of this. So I think there are real questions to be asked as an American listening into this as to whether he is accountable for any of that um, in domestic legislation and under and American jurisprudence also. But that aside, I mean, you know, know, it's a Google search away, really. Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, the multitude of local non-governmental organizations and CSOs working on rights issues. It's a litany, an unending litany, an encyclopedia Britannica of harm, hate, and toxic violence that this family and this man who is the president Have been the architects and the champions and the instigators of, including, by the way, from 2010 onwards uh, and from 2012 onwards in particular, on social media through the weaponization and instrumentalization of product platform surfaces like Facebook. So, this is a man who instilled, I am scared of him, to be very honest, you know, and I think a lot of people are, not right now, because I mean, he's lost um, complete. Uh, credibility, that, that fear is gone, and it's now, re- it's just pure rejection and, you know, farce and humor and visible rejection of a man who was, who was, uh, who was feared to the degree that uh, he was. So I'm not talking about the current moment, but I'm talking about the moment he was elected as president and all the years since, um, to, say, 2007, he had uh, a free reign under the brother, the president, uh, to do whatever he wanted to do. And that's exactly what he did. So this is not a, and I keep saying that, and I mean it very diplomatically, this is not a Democrat and has no aspirations to be a Democrat. Uh, so this is the nature of the man that we're dealing with. And this is the legacy of the family that is
1: now in power in Sri Lanka. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as you said, uh, FYI listeners, uh, Godfrey Rajapaksa used to be a resident in Los Angeles, about two hours north of me here in San Diego. His brother, the former minister of finance, uh, who is also very much implicated in some basically thievery, also has like homes in Los Angeles. Yeah. Basil Rajapaksa. So (laughs) they were American citizens for a little bit. uh, And you had to wonder uh, what if the US government or what they may do if... Actually, Basil still is. Yeah, he actually still is an American citizen. That's that's crazy. Yeah. So I mean, uh, I mean, Sanjana, you mentioned that Gotebe is not a Democrat in terms of a supporter of democracy. We've heard all of this bad stuff. We've known a lot of this bad stuff, especially this culture of white waning for so long. How did he win the election? How, how did he come to power in an election?
2: Well, it was. I mean, it's well. There's a complicated answer, and there's a simple answer. One is the complicated answer as a uh, it's part of my doctoral research in terms of the manner in which uh, a catastrophic, heart-wrenching uh, 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 April, uh, Easter Sunday in April 2019 and the terrorism associated with it, which I'm sure listeners are aware of, but just to, to refresh their minds, uh, on Easter Sunday in April 2019, there was a series of coordinated terrorist uh, terrorist attacks across the country, targeting, uh, well, hotels in Colombo, but also many, many churches. Uh, 270, if I recall, lives were lost eventually, and many on that day itself as a consequence of the suicide bombs um, that that were exploded on that day. And it was catastrophic. I mean, let me stress to listeners who might be familiar with 30 years of war that the immediate response may be that, okay, Sri Lanka is used to this because we've been a country at war for three decades. But I can assure you, um, with all sincerity, that that level of grief and violence is something that the country wasn't prepared for. And it really took um, us all by, I mean, putting it mildly, surprise And it was extremely traumatic, traumatic to this day, by the way, because, Andre, as you know, um, there are major questions about who who, who really did it and uh, you know it's a in classic in a in a classic rajapaksa twist um, nobody really who was the masterminds of uh, what occurred has been held accountable and that's kind of what is also a concern which we haven't talked about but the call for justice by the victims of the easter sunday 2019 attacks uh, and including by the catholic church in the country which is the largest uh, de- denominational church um for christians in sri lanka but The 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 other thing, Andre, as I'm sure you know, when you ask the question, is that it's kind of, and I suppose this is the way to put it to American listeners, it's the it's the pushback to the government of the time in 2019 that then led to this groundswell of a popular surge for a strongman, and that's exactly what he kind of campaigned around. He was a a presidential candidate who very very clearly, openly, and repeatedly said that he's going to come on a national security ticket. He was going to shape and structure and mold society and the country such that that kind of attack would never occur again. He didn't have, I mean, to be be fair by him, he didn't have any kind of democratic uh, nuance or um, interest in the campaign at all, really. I mean, the whole campaign was on the basis of the public rejection of what at the time were uh, a president and a prime minister incapable. I mean, you know, Sri Lanka has gone through, um, the Sri Lankan political culture isn't one of competence, but the the the, the public were so incensed by what happened in April that by uh, November um, uh, that year, they were very, very prepared to give a man who, Andre, I mean, just keep this in mind that the 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 family still uses um, the 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 narrative that they won the war to justify everything that they do. Yep. And so this is the this is the calling card. This is an emotional calling card. Um, it's a it's, it 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 has held great traction in the south of the country with the Sinhala Buddhist majority, which propelled the president into power. Uh, and so this has been the glue that has held every, every, everything together. Uh, and the one excuse, the, the, the get out of jail free card, if you were to see it that way, um, that, the, that the family has always used. And that's kind of what he used as well. I mean, he was he basically said, listen, I won the war. Let me sort this out. And that's what he won um, the election around. I mean, you know, the, the public gave him uh, uh, support. And at the end of the day, I mean, even for for myself and many others, it wasn't a surprise that he won. It wasn't as yeah. if... It was uh, revelatory. It was the inevitable consequence of what occurred in April that year that gave rise to this man being projected and promoted as the presidential candidate and winning that uh, winning that election. But may I just very quickly say, Andre, that you know one of the interesting things about that election was that uh, even as a candidate, I mean, he's he's not a very just putting it diplomatically, he's he's not a good speaker. He's not a people person. He has very bad people skills. He's a very bad public speaker. It's his brother Mahinda who's charismatic to. Uh, 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 to a degree that, you know, is is, is or you almost think is genetic. I mean, he is the born politician. Um, and uh, that connection with the public that Mahinda always has had, maybe not now, but has always had as the paterfamilias of the family is not something that Gotabe has ever had and probably never ever wanted to have. So one of the really interesting things about that election is that, I mean, listeners may know of uh, the Manchurian candidate, either as a film or two films or as a book. And I've always said that Gotabe was a Manchurian candidate. He's a candidate put in because Mahinda couldn't stand for election. And this is basically succession planning so that Mahinda's son, Namal, can also then continue in political office. So he was placed there. And one of the interesting things about the campaign was that, I mean, I'll just leave it at that. Listeners should know that even though Gotabe was running, it was Mahinda who was always at the center of photos, the center of videos. He was doing the answering at press conferences. Every question was directed to him. So you were confused. I mean, who is the candidate and who is actually answering the question? So it was very clear that even within the family, they knew that you know if the questions were to be answered by Gotabe, that what is very evident today would have been evident then, that he's not very intelligent. Uh, and so that's one of the ironies of that campaign. But it wasn't a surprise that he came into power.
1: Yeah, and, and you mentioned, you know, the the always these assertions. You know, I won the war, so this is our get out of jail free card. Uh, hopefully, maybe you know, maybe that might be taken. Well, <laughs> these days, you never I, use know that, I use that deliberately. Yes. Yeah, yeah, right. Get out of jail free card, but. Uh, as we sort of move this conversation into the actual protests, uh, as these protests have intensified, and again, I want to emphasize, they are peaceful. They've been very, very peaceful, which is really unique. Uh, but the mind the Rajapaksa, the Prime Minister, who, as you mentioned, was sort of the guy who was asked answering all the questions, the natural-born politician, they sort of wheeled him out the other day to address these protests uh, in a. In a recorded speech that i think was spliced together or something and i think the amount that he mentioned i won the war quite a bit Uh, we won the war quite a bit and uh it it it, to me at least it looked like okay this is someone who is who feels that their power is being very threatened uh and right now these mass protests i want to talk about this it's really interesting to me because This is cutting across all the demographics. Am I right? Yes, it is.
2: It's the most demographically diverse and the most geographically dispersed protest in the history of the country.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there hasn't been a situation like this. This is historic and unprecedented. So in terms of the organization of the protests, how did these protests Come to be again, Sanjana. As you mentioned, you were afraid of Gota and you started Ground Views, which, again, I mean, a fantastic website that really did a lot of critical journalism at a time when many journalists were being killed uh, by Gota and the government. But uh, how did these protests come to be? H- how did they? How were they generated?
2: Well, I mean, there are a couple of ways that you can slice and dice through this. I mean, listeners should know that in I have studied social media and Facebook or meta as it's now called, from the 26th of January 2010 onwards, unbroken. And I know that date because that was the date of the the first presidential election in Sri Lanka after the end of the war the previous year in May 2009. And I've studied every prime minister, every president and every parliamentarian who's ever had a Facebook or meta page or group uh, or personal account since 2010. So that's well over a decade. And Gotabe, the current president, is the first politician and certainly the first president who shut off comments on his official page, <laughs> which is quite extraordinary, yeah. really, come to think of it. Uh, that hasn't stopped, obviously, reactions. The reactions are now predominantly and have been for a while now. Ha ha, which is laughing at him or angry, which is actually being angry at him. And it has, I think, because the consequence of, I mean, there was some choice, you know, Singhalese listeners should know is a far more expressive language than English. And the manner in which we can decapitate a head by leaving it standing in its place is quite extraordinary in terms of the vocabulary that you can employ to kind of push back against somebody that you don't like. And he was getting choice Singhalese language commentary. And, I, you know, it, it speaks to a man or a social media team, whichever it may be, and it may be both, who cannot take that. Mahinda is still open in his Facebook, on his Facebook page. But here's the other thing, because you brought up the speech. Mahinda, who's been a politician since 2005 and has had a Facebook page since the 26th of January 2010, actually leading up to it as well for the campaign, that was the most unpopular speech he's ever given in his political career on social media, measured by the tone, timber and thrust of the commentary, the nature of the reactions, uh, and, and the spread of the video on Facebook. It was not just overwhelming, it was exclusively pushing back on what he said and laughing at it. Now, Listeners should realize that this is quite extraordinary. I mean, this is a family that has instrumentalized and manipulated social media to support its own image. Um, And that branding exercise continues every day and has heightened during electoral moments. They are with babies, they are with their trophy wives, they are with their beautiful girlfriends or friends having a lifestyle. Um, and performatively interacting with the public such that they are always seen as one with the public, but they're not obviously, you know, at the end of the day, but this is a branding exercise, which has been very, very popular and quite pervasive and it's completely failed. So one of the things that Andrea, I'll say to you straight up is that, and I genuinely believe this and I'm empathetic to the family as well in my more charitable moments is that they simply don't know what to do because here you have, I mean, just imagine, I mean, for decades, you've Engineered and being the architects of unrest and violence, and some suddenly, not are you just not are you not only confronted with a protest movement that's coast to coast, it also is leaderless. So that's the other answer to your uh, 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 question, which is that this is an entirely organic protest. I mean, one, one thing that gave rise to the current moment is a is a protest that took place in a place called Mirihana, in a suburb of Colombo on the thirty first of March um that turned a bit violent but then you know the subsequent protests haven't been violent at all really and that was the culmination of many, many, many other protests that were entirely peaceful, that for weeks at a neighborhood level, geographically spread, were occurring. So, I mean, that I don't think listeners would cotton on to, and international media would be oblivious to. So, there were our friends and colleagues and families who were organizing just candlelit vigils. And by the way, candlelit because there was no electricity for 13 hours. So, it wasn't as if it was deliberate. It was just a matter of necessity that you had to have candles to get to to, to see where the hell you were going to. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that was a process that led to the 31st. And then after the 31st, obviously it culminated on the 9th of April to what we have, you call it the Central Park of Colombo. I think it's much smaller, but I think the idea is right. Uh, And then it has continued uh, up until the day of recording this. Um, So it's a couple of things. It's organic, it's dispersed, it's leaderless. Um, It is democratic, it is uh, uh, multi-ethnic, multi-religious, demographically diverse. Um, There are artists and singers and rap artists and uh, visual artists and children and babies, married couples. um, uh, Muslims who are, you know, as in the middle of Ramadan now, are breaking fast. Uh, Buddhist monks are there, Christians. It's the most Sri Lankan, if you were to see it that way, that we have, well, I can speak for myself because I've never seen anything like this on social media. There has never been anything like this on social media, but friends on the ground tell me that the mood, you know, Andre, you're there I am here, but I think we can get a sense of it, but it's electric on the ground.
1: That's what I'm hearing.
2: I mean, I have literally been told this, and there are people lamenting the fact that I'm not there because it's electric. There's a mood. There's a, there's a, there's a vibration. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a vibe on the ground that is, inclusive and excluding the racism and division and by the way, that's still, you know, that, that the family is still trying on social media at pace uh, that has been unprecedented. So it's a, it's a unique moment. It's, it really is. I mean, again, listeners who are of a certain age would would recall Zuccotti Park in its heyday and it's Zenith that really is a frame to look at an entire country that is Sri Lanka today where the interest of the media would be gall face, But I just wanted to stress that it's not just gall face, It's across the country. gall face is, I suppose, the largest occupation that's going on at the moment. But it's really a mood that is across the country and with protests that are occurring across the country as well. So extraordinary, extraordinary. And also a lot of youth are involved as well.
1: And uh, just to go back to an earlier piece of your answer, uh, the Rajapaksas—they uh, have—I feel like in terms of all the politicians in Sri Lanka, they have been the most dominant, I guess, uh, on social media. And uh, I mean, that's correct, right? Yes, yes,
2: they have—they—they they have been primus inter pares. That's not to say that uh, other political entities, parties, and politicians haven't been instrumentalizing it, but from 2012. But I conducted the first research in South Asia looking at Facebook's instrumentalization for violent extremism. That was done by this family or its saffronized proxies in the Buddhist clergy. So from 2012 onwards, almost nigh upon a decade, this family, this government, this regime have been front and center in the instrumentalization of uh, just meta for. Uh, offline unrest and violence.
1: Yeah, and I mean, for our listeners, again, uh, this is before January 6th. This is before we saw the Oh, absolutely. Right. This is before January oh, yeah. 6th. This is, this is.
2: Let, let me just put it, I mean, this is before 2016. Yeah. This is before Brexit. So this is, I mean, uh, Maria Ressa, who's a Nobel laureate, uh, said that our country, she was referring to the Philippines, but it's, I mean, she and I have been exchanging notes, you know, our countries, I mean, Andre, not yours, but, you know, the country of your birth or your home, oh, I don't know about your home, but certainly Sri Lanka has been, a, has a, has been You know, she, she referred to it as a very interesting way. She said that we are the petri dish. We are the ones that uh, are the contexts and the cultures and the countries that things are trialed and tested first before they're deployed at scale and at greater speed and scope across both sides of the Atlantic. So we have seen, lived through, negotiated and studied every imaginable thing that is going or I in the United States. And I mean that quite sincerely with
1: regards to social media. Absolutely. Because I mean, just for listeners to know, and I mean, again, to my fellow Americans, uh, this wasn't just a thing that popped up in January 6th or after 2016. Uh, We have seen social media in Sri Lanka be used to instigate and kill uh, people of the Islamic faith by, uh, you know, predominantly Sinhala Buddhist nationalists. And we have just seen the government shut down social media at times to quell And control these riots. So again, I mean, one of my biggest problems with the social media companies is when you're sort of using some of these, I think, rules and stuff on American leaders, are you able to even universally apply it to countries like Sri Lanka? Is there even an attention paid to Sri Lankan, you know, countries like that? Well, was that a question from me? Uh, the simple answer is no. I guess, I guess I'd like to comment no, on that. I'm I mean, like-
2: till till March 2018, which was the start of my doctoral research, there wasn't any interest. I left the country to come to New Zealand to do my PhD when the country was burning. And uh, listeners, again, the attentive ones may recall that Sri Lanka at the time in March 2018 made top of the fold front page New York Times headlines as a consequence of what was going on on the ground that was exacerbated, not created, but inflamed by the manner in which Facebook communicated, amplified uh, and uh, spread harms that led to offline violence and unrest. So that was the first time, even though the research with grounded evidence had been produced and given to them since 2012, they engaged and of course, subsequently, they've tried to kind of do a lot of things. We could spend the day talking about what they've tried to do. Uh, to contain, control, and curtail those harms. Um, But no, you're quite right. And you're right on the ball where policies that always look at America, and also may I just add, it's not just America, it's actually the Silicon Valley. I mean, you have a very limited imaginative scope by white males who think that the world is a projection and a reflection of the realities that they inhabit in the valley. And that has led to a degree of violence as a consequence of the actions that they've taken or not taken in countries and contexts like mine, which I think is now better known as a consequence of Francis Haugen. But Francis Haugen didn't say anything revelatory to those of us in the global South, because we know, we know this is our life. This is what we've been telling the companies. And of course, now it's 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 a better known story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And again, going back to your previous point, the speech that we had referenced by the Rajapaksa was delivered in the past week to sort of get a grip on what's been going on with the protests. But Sanjana, you mentioned that the protests are leaderless. They're coming truly from the people. Uh, and the hashtag that's been used is hashtag go home Gota. Uh, well, there are a couple of
2: hashtags. That's the, that's that's one dominant one.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, one dominant one, uh, which is clearly a reference to Gota Bay's uh, former American residency. He probably still owns the house, but. Uh, In terms of that, I mean, what's the end goal? Is it merely to sort of get Gautabe Rajapaksa to resign the presidency? Is there any end goal beyond the removal of Gautabe Rajapaksa?
2: Well, right now, the the clarion call, the narrative focus and frame, and the target of the uh, public frustration is the president. And then the family, including the prime minister, but also the prime minister's son, who was an MP, and then, of course, the Basil Rajapaksa, and then the coterie of uh, aparachiks who've been inhabiting places like the Central Bank. So it's a constellation of incompetence and nepotism um, that the public are are incensed about. And they direct it quite rightly to a president who said that he's going to have a competent presidency and to give him all the powers. I mean, listeners must know that this is the most powerful executive presidency in the world. You're talking about a godlike figure, untouchable by parliament or the legislature. Um, And so there are uh, amendments that were introduced during his uh, presidency as well that embellished the power and authority of that office even more. So it's a a highly problematic, extremely unconstitutional. And one of the calls is actually to abolish the office as well, which the opposition wants to take forward. So the the immediate call with the hashtag that you mentioned and associated allied hashtags is aimed at the president. Or the family, so it's go home, Gota, go home, uh, Gota, go home, go home, Rajapaksa's, and I suppose that this anger against the government, which has let down its people so much, um, the, the 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 family has the majority in parliament as well. Now after that, it's a it's an open question, because I mean, so that's why I get into interesting terrain here, because uh, there have been teach there, there have been teach outs at the protest where. My friends and colleagues have been going and it's quite extraordinary and quite heartening actually. I mean, talking about stuff like, you know, constitutional reform and human rights and what is the history of our country, Um, macroeconomics. So people have been trying to educate others around systems change Um, because right now, um, one would think looking at the content as I do that the synergy on the president suggests that he's, I mean, however he, this moves forward, I mean, either he resigns or he's impeached, I mean, whichever way, him getting out of the office um, will bring about some sort of relief. And you and I know, and sad to say that that's not, I mean, in the sense that yes, it's important he gets out of office and yes, it's important. It's not just that, by the way, I mean, he's a, he and the family are held accountable for economic crimes. I mean, this is very, very serious. I mean, you know, we're talking about the pillaging of a country over decades. I mean, people are incensed and, you know, there's, there are, you know, the, the Deccan Herald uh, today on the date of uh, recording this ran a story where there are very serious concerns whether they've actually airlifted gold and money to Uganda and Kampala. So you can't make this stuff up. And you know, this is a family that you know—it—it—it—it's not incredible to think that they would have done that, right? So these are real hard questions that we had to be asking now, and so these are the questions that people are asking as well. But I think the so end by saying, Andre, one of the really really nice things about what I am seeing as a protest movement is that there is a genuine interest in the cultural shift in politics. You know, I mean, and again, listeners would not know this because the memes, I mean, I don't know whether your singular competence is good enough, but, um, you know, the memes, the mimetic, the cartoon uh, uh, representations of political rejection and critique uh, on Facebook is a rejection of the political culture, the veneration, you know, the genuflection in terms of uh, what the public have been uh, affording uh, elected officials. Very unlike, in a sense, the United States, you know. I mean, here is a, literally, I mean, you know, it, it, this is a deification of the family and and political uh, leaders. And that is now changing. I mean, the youth, I mean, the literal courts are like, we will not do that anymore. We will not give you way on the road for your convoys. We want a complete shift. We want a tone and a timber and a thrust of political uh, of politics and policymaking that is far more representative and empathetic to the public and the and, and and the people, and so that you know, aside from obviously getting rid of the president, which again I'm entirely partial to, one of the really interesting things about the movement is that is that interest in a shift and a change for the better of the country's political culture. Again, it, it, it's quite extraordinary. I, mean, I, I keep saying this, and listeners may uh, find me incredulous for saying it, but it, you know. I think you'll agree with me, we've never seen yeah. this kind of discourse. It may not last, Like you know, I, you can be cynical about it, but the fact that it is there, it is present, it is growing, it can't be raised, and that the first family doesn't know what to do with it speaks to the power it has. Uh, and I hope that it continues
1: into the future too. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, a follow-up question to that, uh, I mean, are there political parties or political entities that are trying to hijack the protests for their own need? How is this being received? Uh, is that a thing that's going on, or have any political parties been successful at that?
2: Well, you see, I suppose the people, or I mean, the the there's. The, 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 The People's Liberation Front, called the Janata Vimukti Peruban, the JVP, is a leftist party that wanted to join the protests, but have been now rejected by the people at the protest. (laughs) Quite extraordinary. I mean, this is just, I mean, this is what happened today or in the past 24 hours. The opposition, I think, has been rather, I mean, the opposition till the protests has been a good idea. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? You know, they, they really haven't been present. Mm. Um, but now they 've stepped up, and now um, you know they want to bring about the, they want to abolish the executive presidency and they want to impeach the president um, if he doesn 't resign, so they are finally living up to what an opposition should be doing and could be doing, but it took the protests to kind of galvanize them into any kind of uh, political action and animation um, but i mean it 's complicated right i mean um, the Rajapaksas themselves are trying to corrupt the narrative of the protest and the protest movement and to try to uh, you know, use dis and misinformation through social media to, um, to splinter the groups and to uh, uh, amplify racism and communalism and division. Um, that's something that's actively happening as we speak. Um, but in terms of political parties, um, They have been doing their business in Parliament. They haven't been front-facing. They haven't been at the protests. Occasionally, one or two have gone, but, you know, they're not really leading. They're literally not leading the protests. I mean, it's very, very different to a May Day or a political rally in that sense. And so the people also really are fed up with, I would imagine, all the political parties. I mean, that's not to say that they are rejecting them equally, but there is a fair degree of frustration around those who have been i mean i don't think i mean listeners should also realize that all of the entities that we're talking about all the president the prime minister the you know or the central bank governor till recently the 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 president and prime minister's brother they're all over 70. Some of them are in their 80s. So, you know, you have a complete demographic disconnect with uh, with a new generation um, of individuals, you know, pre-franchise and uh, first-time voters in 2019, who have been completely let down by, uh, you know, this, 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 this and, 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 and literally an older generation of politicians. So, there's a there's there a There's a real disconnect there as well, so it's not as if the political parties, who are all led by old men, can immediately connect with what's happening on the ground and the protest movement as is, as it is represented uh, on social media. so the simple answer to that is that um the opposition has been kicked into high gear as a consequence of the protests, and there are things happening to impeach the president or uh, and or to uh, you know get rid of the uh, the executive presidency as an office which has been promised for for many, many moons, but we may see it finally come about and I really hope it comes about. But it's not as if there's, you know, poli- that's the thing. I mean, it's a good and a bad thing. I mean, there's no political structure to the protests of today. And that will have to come about because as you know, I mean, this can only come about in the future through political architectures. Um, but what that architecture is going to be uh, which political party or entity is going to take that mantle forward are all open questions
1: now. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And then, I mean, as we sort of close this conversation, I do want to touch on one thing. Uh, the government tried to, to basically shut down or ban social media. I think that ban only lasted 16 hours, maybe two weeks ago now. yes. Uh, what has been the role of, say, platforms like WhatsApp Facebook, Twitter, and actually organizing some of these protests, and why was that social media ban so unsuccessful? Well,
2: it is. It was farcical. I mean, it was the, the 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 prime minister's own son came on to Twitter with using a VPN, saying that VPNs were how he was tweeting, and he was saying that people should encourage the rest of the government to get rid of the social media. Bam! So it's it's a it's a completely absurd situation. It's a, it's an absurd theater, really, you know. Uh, so uh, it, it was farcical, and um, you know, social media has been absolutely central to uh, to the protests, you know. And that's the kind of other thing that is. I mean, we uh, I've flagged it explicitly in that the Western media seems to be only interested in social media when everything's going all right, which is why they were interested in march 2018 and every other occasion where in you know inevitably and invariably social media has played a role in the exacerbation of offline unrest and violence i mean i should know that better than most with a long gaze and as well as doctoral research now the flip side to that is that there is a simultaneous interplay of the pro social as well and the democratic which is what we are seeing today i mean you're looking at hundreds of millions of engagements like interactions and comments over tens of millions of posts uploaded every single minute of the day on every imaginable platform that you can think of as Americans and probably some that you can't because you don't even use them or know of them. And so that is the nature of the protests that we have today. Some of this can be studied by academics. Some of them can't. For example, what's happening on WhatsApp in terms of private messaging and groups would be central to some of the stuff that's going on on the ground. And I I know that because I keep getting for every time I wake up in the morning, I wake up to a tsunami of message forwards of the most incredible creativity all against the president, all against the prime minister, ranging from videos to photos, to courts, to audio, to uh, screenshots. And you can just imagine what the spread of that, all of that and the seed of it would be in the country. And then there's the observable part as well. I mean, it's it's i mean i am really excited to 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 study this moment i have half jokingly said and anybody who's a listener who's done a phd would re- recognize the gravity of this that i half wish i was doing my phd <laughs> as opposed to being very glad that i have done it because it's such an extraordinary moment. This is a moment that global scholars of social media would be interested in, and I've said that we need to be front-facing that, and we need to be center and forward in some of that study, because it really is quite extraordinary. And social media is center and forward in the speed, scope, and scale, in the volume, the vector, and the velocity of it, and the tone, timber, and thrust of the content. It's quite extraordinary.
1: Absolutely. And on that note, Sanjana. Uh- that's a wrap. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This was a really great session to sort of cover what's been going on in Sri Lanka with all of these protests, what was going on with the Rajapaksas, and then, of course, how social media sort of interplayed uh, in with these protests. Uh, Folks, uh, you can follow Sanjana at Sanjana on Twitter. Again, he does a lot of really pioneering research, in my view, uh, on social media, uh, in Sri Lankan politics. And of course, Sri Lanka had a lot of this stuff happen before it happened in America, essentially. And we should all be paying more attention to it. Uh, Sanjana, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So Ryan, that was our episode uh, on Sri Lanka. Uh, What were your first reactions as a sort of a non-Sri Lanka watcher? Yeah, no, I certainly am not a Sri Lanka watcher.
0: And this uh, episode was a a great way to become a Sri Lanka watcher. And so uh, I'm really glad that you did it. Uh, The biggest takeaway for me is that how widespread the protests really are. I don't think I had an understanding of that through the news reporting, just how kind of into free fall the country is falling. I mean, this is a huge crisis. I mean, of course, it's an economic crisis, but now it's, I mean, it is an all consuming and a huge political crisis for the people just because, I mean, at least for me, you know, the fact that you can't get simple necessities right now, I mean, that is where things, right, that is where things completely go to the absolute worst places. And that's where the government repression gets worse and worse. And so, you know, Andre, I'm curious to see where, how things have progressed since you recorded this episode because I I really can't imagine where this thing will lead. And i and I don't have, you know, a lot of optimism uh, with it.
1: Yeah. So, so basically the Rajapaksa brothers have, uh, they've said rhetorically, they plan on uh, introducing and appointing a brand new cabinet. Uh, as of this time, Sunday afternoon in San Diego, they still haven't appointed a new cabinet, but that's not what the people who are protesting want. They want the Rajapaksa brothers gone. They don't want any Rajapaksas in the government. So uh, Sanjana basically said, the Rajapaksa brothers don't know what to do. They don't really know what they can actually do to resolve this crisis and survive politically. Because if they are you know, taken out uh, politically... Uh, what will consequences be for them uh, in terms of accountability for economic crimes, for war crimes, for political crimes, for the journalists they've killed, uh, and all of that. So that's sort of what's happening right now. Uh, There is this uh, massive protest at this sort of green patch of land in downtown Colombo. Called Gull Face. It's sort of uh, Sri Lanka's equivalent of Central Park. Uh, thousands, tens of thousands of people have been camped out there for nights on end, uh, just protesting and so on. And again, I do want to emphasize this mass protest is unique in that it's been peaceful so far. Uh, of course, we saw the Arab Spring. Peaceful protests turned a bit violent in many uh, areas, but this protest in Sri Lanka cross-cutting in terms of demographics, and peaceful. Uh, And and something that I think a lot of Sri Lankans have taken issue with, who are actually on the ground in Sri Lanka at these protests, is that uh, news organizations like the New York Times have done stories on this. But they've used photos that seem to imply uh, violence has been occurring. And there was violence at one protest, but not really a lot of the other protests, but you're sort of picking and choosing some of these images of like fires and, you know, people with maniacal faces and whatnot. And you're painting the picture that this is significantly worse, or at least the protests are significantly worse in terms of violence than they actually are, Uh, which again illustrates uh, one of our problems in terms of our discussion of foreign policy here in the United States, is that we often have folks who write and talk about these issues from that outsider perspective, and oftentimes from too much of an outsider perspective. We sometimes don't take into account the actual perspectives and opinions and words of those who are actually living these uh, crises and these conflicts, and we're not necessarily consolidating all of that together in an objective way. We're sort of implanting our own uh, bias uh, on these issues or sort of what we think you know, is happening around the world, we use those experiences to transplant our own understanding of what's happening in Sri Lanka. For example, you might have heard, Ryan, that in Pakistan, uh, the Prime Minister Imran Khan was ousted. Did you hear about that? Uh, That was what was essentially reported and what social media showed, yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, so Imran Khan was ousted because Pakistan is also going through its economic crises. And uh, I kid you not, there probably will be some... uh, authors and so on who will start writing about how Pakistan and Sri Lanka is indicative of a new trend in South Asia or the global South uh, vis-a-vis US-China relations. But what is happening in Sri Lanka is very, very, very exclusive to what is happening in Sri Lanka. Sure, there might be some underlying trends that make it a bit common with other countries, but Sri Lanka is unique, as is Pakistan. And the United States and our experts can't just paint a broad brushstroke uh, over an entire region and make assumptions about this, because this is one of the biggest reasons why we have failed in terms of foreign policy in many smaller countries. I think that's absolutely spot on. And
0: so, you know, of course, you know, you and I are you know, not on the grounds in all of these countries, but we do try to bring on people who are to get their perspectives because they, as you said, Andre, could very well have far better understandings of the actual happenings uh, on the ground there. And so... Uh, we'll see how the U.S. foreign policy community and the global foreign policy community tries to, I guess, assess the situation in Sri Lanka and, and Pakistan. And they somewhere. try to assess it. I, well, hopefully they do. Yes, that, it's a, that's another, you know, problem within kind of the, the blob is that, you know, the lack of focus on some issues. But anyway, uh, Andre, truly, you know, this was a fantastic episode. I'm, I'm very happy that you did it. I'm sure all of our listeners uh, share that uh, feeling as well. And so uh, I think we'll leave it there for this week's episode. Sure.
1: Definitely. Well, Ryan, uh, we'll be back soon. I can't really guarantee a in the world because we haven't done those in a while, but uh, we'll be back with another good episode on Monday. Absolutely. All right. So stay
0: tuned. Stay tuned. Thank you all for listening. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at BurnbagPod. We'll talk to you next time.